good to play a dirty trick on him because he's got a voice. He can actually sing. That's good. We left off the, the verse about uh, my Savior and my God, my conqueror and my king. How could we leave that one off? Robert was saying, I want to go back to overheads, overhead transparency. We heard from some of you in the back. You said uh, you like the PowerPoint, so we're going to try to stick with it because you said you didn't even know there were notes until they got up on PowerPoint. So uh, we're glad you can read them back there. Maybe that'll keep you awake for a change back in the back. Guys, uh, turn to Zechariah, your favorite book in the Bible. Zechariah, next to the last book in your Old Testament, page 1510, if you're still counting. Uh, and you know that Zechariah is written in a way that overlaps with Haggai. And I think you, you could see this yeah, in the uh, introduction that this study Bible provides on page 1508. You can see that Zechariah begins his preaching around October, November of 520 B.C., when Haggai has already been in the midst of his preaching. You say, well, we already got Haggai. Why do we need Zechariah? Here's the deal. Haggai, as you remember from last week, was focusing upon the task of getting the temple built now, not later. And so often, we saw last week, we have all kinds of excuses for not doing the work of the Lord, all kinds of excuses for postponing it, all kinds of reasons uh, why we're being opposed and we just kind of give up. That's exactly what was facing the people when they got back to Jerusalem. You remember, they were opposed by surrounding neighbors who did not want them to build that temple because when you build a temple, it becomes a threat to everybody around you because that means that a fortress is being established. So they were facing all kinds of opposition and they made excuses and stopped building the temple. And Haggai said, well, I noticed you had to stop building your own houses with those nice paneled rooms you've got. Uh, so he was saying, look, you, you know how to build and you've got resources. Let's start building. So Haggai was kind of the kick in the rear end for all of the church to get busy on missions, <laughs> get busy on worship and to do the things of the kingdom that really mattered. Now, that's a message we need today. We saw that last week. There are things we need to do in our own neighborhoods, our families, right here in this city, right here in our nation, in our world. And we're not supposed to be giving up. We're supposed to be building the kingdom of God. Or we're supposed to be those through whom God is building His kingdom. And uh, so that was a, it's an important word for us. But when we come to Zechariah, we're going to see that he has a little bit different interest. And the Lord has a little bit different interest than the one he expressed through Haggai. And it is this. Sometimes you and I can be really involved in the work of the kingdom. And we can be really involved in some sort of a mission or some sort of a work or some sort of a, uh, an outreach or something you're doing uh, you know, with the Boy Scouts or uh, with some uh, the Rotary Club or some civic group here in town. You can be very involved in those things and still your heart's not right. And what Zechariah is interested in is not just the reconstruction of the physical temple, but the reconstruction of a man's heart. And we're going to see that he, he really addresses three things that have to happen in our hearts to be sure they're properly reconstructed so that we become a a dwelling fit for the Lord, not just with brick and mortar, but that our hearts become a, a place fit. One is he's going to talk again about repentance. We've seen that over and over again with the prophets. They don't want any baloney. They want real repentance. And we'll see once again how Zechariah articulates what that repentance looks like. Second thing is we're going to see that Zechariah says for you to have your heart right, you have to have a vision for the future. You have to have hope. You have to have this grand and glorious picture of where your life is going, it's kind of a mixture of faith and hope that has to be there for us to be on the move, for us to be under construction, for us to be uh, the kind of people that are pleasing to the Lord. And then thirdly, we're going to see that for our lives to be really directed the way the Lord wants us to be directed, we have to have a life that is actively enthroning Christ. Lifting him up. And we'll see that Zechariah is really clear about this. This is one thing that makes Zechariah actually a very special book in the Bible. Because we're going to get some things about the Messiah to come that are, that are unique to Zechariah. But that are very important to us. And we'll see how it's important to the New Testament. Uh, which picks up on this story of Zechariah. So those three things Zechariah is going to show us. God is concerned about it. It's not just the building. It's not just your work. It's not just what you're doing out there. It's in here. 
other words, there, there's not just the, the work to promote, but there's piety to be lived out in our lives. And that's where Zechariah is going to address his concern. Now, Zechariah does this in a unique way, not completely unique, but well, let's just say a, a very special way, unusual way. In the first part of Zechariah, especially the first six chapters, we're going to get eight visions. And so it's going to remind us a little bit about of, uh, Revelation. And I, those of you who studied last year in Revelation will have benefited from the way in which we learn to look at Revelation because this, too, is somewhat apocalyptic. It's not quite as weird and bizarre as Revelation, but it is apocalyptic sort of material. And once again, that's another thing that makes Zechariah unique among the minor prophets uh, because we get some of these apocalyptic uh, um, visions that he has for us in chapters 1 through Six, and then when we get to the uh, to chapter six, the end of chapter six, we'll see how he shows us what Messiah is going to look out, look at, look like in a in a very uh, particular way. So let's start with the idea of repentance, which we pick up in verses one through six. And remember, this is while Haggai is also preaching, while he is telling them to start building the temple, get busy with their hands and their feet and their money and all the rest and their time. And at that same time, Zechariah is going to address their hearts. And he's basically saying, don't take up the first brick until you get your heart right. Let's do, the, let's do them both at the same time. Let's build the kingdom of God and let's live lives that make a difference. Let's look at this in verse 1 of chapter 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your forefathers, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your forefathers now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your forefathers? Then they repented and said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. All right. First thing we see in verses one through six is that we must repent of our evil ways and practices. The first thing we have to do to be renovated, to be the kind of. To be the project of the Lord. We're going to do his project in the world, but what about his project in us? The first thing is he's looking for his repentance. Now, in Zechariah's idea of repentance, let's look at his constituent elements. First of all, uh, we'll see in verse two, our forefathers were wrong. Our forefathers were wrong. Now, this is hard to admit. It may have been hard for them to admit. But Zechariah is saying, you remember the past 70 years, for heaven's sakes? Do you think that was an accident? Do you think it was undeserved? Do you think that God wasn't, didn't know what he was doing? Do you think that he left the throne? No, God was actively responding to the behavior of his people. And the reason that you and your fathers spent 70 years in Babylon was because your forefathers got off base and didn't do what I'm getting ready to talk to you about. So let's take a warning from the pages of history and let's be sure that we are not men who simply carry on the traditions that we inherited from the past. I love traditions. I mean, look at Second Presbyterian Church. You think we have no regard for tradition? I mean, we're kind of known as a traditional church. I love cherished traditions. But more than cherished traditions, I love the word of God. And when the word of God trumps the tradition, the tradition goes out the window. But you won't find everybody reacts that way, will you? Because we identify ourselves from our fathers. And we so thoughtlessly at times do exactly what they did and never challenge it. And, of course, if you get involved in marriage, you're going to find out everything's going to get challenged, <laughs> including your traditions. And what happens if, if you're going to have a successful marriage, you're going to blend two traditions. And you may have celebrated Christmas one way and she may have celebrated the other way. But if you're smart, you're going to learn now to celebrate it two ways, <laughs> at least. And blend somebody else's tradition because you realize, well, we had a great tradition, but it's not the only one. It's not the only way to do it. And it doesn't matter that much. 
It matters more that I love my wife and that I show her I appreciate her life and her background and her legacy. So there are many things that begin to compromise traditions, but the Israelites were not very good at it. They encrusted their traditions. And gentlemen, I see that in our own community, uh, places where traditions just continue thoughtlessly, and, and obviously, I guess the one that's always before us is the tradition of racism. I mean, if you think about the division in our community, how much of this comes from three, four hundred years ago and just piled up and everybody's living in their tradition. No one's willing to break the mold. And uh, if I can say so, this whole issue last summer uh, about the statues downtown and the naming of the parks. Look, I understand some of, some of you here have cherished traditions. You have great grandfathers who fought nobly in a war and you want to remember them. I understand that. But when the word of God says we're to build community and love our neighbor, don't you think that that would trump honoring uh, your, your grandfather's memory in a way that maybe is not helpful uh, in, in culture today? It just seems to me that so often we get trapped in these traditions that trump love instead of love trumping traditions. And you say, well, I don't think anybody should have to give up their heritage. Well, I don't think they have to by law. It seems to me that someone who's following Jesus Christ who left a place where his father took really good care of him and came to a place where his father got trashed and gave his life on the cross in order to accomplish love. It seems to me that model would be the model of the followers of Christ. And I find that the thought forms, uh, not, I'm not talking just about white folks. I'm talking about black folks, too. If I can talk about those of you who aren't black or white, just take a little snooze for a moment. Uh, you know, this is Memphis. We got our things here. And we got our own personal talking we want to do. So this is just for you who, either, who are either black or white. Uh, both of us get stuck in our traditions. We get stuck in either the grievances of the past or we get stuck in the abuses that, that our people have done in the past and we don't want to admit it because those were our parents. And I've, I've found even in current discussions where we're trying to make headway in empowering uh, Af the African-American community or we're trying to make headway in building institutions that are clearly diverse and, and empowering everybody in the community, that sometimes I'll see resistance. Let me talk to you white folks again for a second. I'll see resistance among the whites because in order to go a certain way, you'd have to admit that the way in the past wasn't correct. And if you do that, you're going to admit that your daddy might have had some racism. And you don't want to do that. And here's the kind of thing I hear often. Well, now, you know, they lived in another age. And, and I know they didn't, mean, you know they didn't mean to be a racist or anything. And I don't want to say anything that would slam them because, you know, that's not what... Your forefathers were wrong. You're wrong, and you better hope your grandchildren have the wit to realize it. And that in their day, they can make some changes, and they're not stuck to something just because you did it. You need to be teaching your children that right now. You're supposed to take this thing on beyond me. And you're not to be stuck to the way I do things, because you're supposed to grow. You're supposed to be a better thinker than I am. And that's the meaning of the power of God's work through the generations. It's supposed to spiral up, not spiral down. So what happens is when you concretize the traditions of your fathers and you try to defend them, and that's your number one agenda, you go down this way. And you're following your fathers instead of following your father. And that's exactly what happened to these folks. And I see a lot of folks thoughtlessly falling into that pattern. Now, for African Americans, you've got your own struggles. If you have been abused or your great-grandparents have been abused, it's very easy to hang on to that, that grievance because they were abused. And then you can be sinning by reacting to something that's not even real if you're not very careful. Once again, you're just responding to past instead of looking to the Father and asking Him what He wants you to do in this age and generation. You have to be your own man. That's what the Bible is saying. Be your own man under God. And that means you stand up to your father. And you stand up to your grandfather. And with love and respect, even though they may be dead, with love and respect, you say, I love you, and here's the direction that I'm going to have to go with my life. I don't know if you've ever had to do that with your father. Uh, I did a couple of times in my life. And you know what? I just found the Lord blessed it. When I, when I really believed that I was moving in the right direction, you go ahead and stand up and be your own man. That's what Zechariah is saying. If you're a mere traditionalist, you're not a follower of Christ. 
On the other hand, there's no reason unnecessarily to overthrow traditions. Examine every tradition. Your traditions, tradition is simply dead people voting. And, and G.K. Chesterton said that's the reason tradition is good, because you're allowing dead people to vote. So, okay, let them vote, but you get the last vote. And you exercise your vote. Now, you hear their vote. You're getting their advice. Listen to them like you always have. Now, make your own decision. If you don't, you are bound to end up in sin. Because every generation, part of their traditions are sinful. And God gives us new light as a culture, even, as we move on and move forward. We're expected to grow and mature. We're expected to change things. And there's some things that need to change around here. And they need to change from people who have a vision for being their own man. Secondly, verse 3 God pleads with us to return. Look at this verse. He says, uh, uh, return to me. This is what the Lord says. Return to me and I will return to you. You say, I thought God was sovereign. He wasn't waiting on me. I thought he'd just come whenever he wants to. Well, God is sovereign. Sovereignly, he works through pleading with you. And he is basically saying, look, you return to me. You're my people. You've got my name on you. You come back to me with hunger and thirst, and I will feed you. You come back to me looking for me to protect you under the shadow of my wing, I will protect you. You come back to me and ask me to give you wisdom, I'll give you wisdom. You come back to me and ask me to give you a purpose in life, I'll give it to you. You come back to me and ask me to comfort you in the midst of your distresses, I will comfort you. You must come to me. And... Whether you're a Calvinist or Arminian, it makes no difference in this sense. The Lord Himself says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. I'll have communion with you. But you have to open the door. You have to let him in. And he is pleading with you to let him in. It's a strange thing. We have a sovereign God who could do whatever he wants, and he condescends to plead with you. That's an amazing picture. Return to me and I'll return to you. What a, what a pathetic plea from a sovereign God. But that's exactly what He's doing. And this morning, He's pleading with you. Would you come on back? Because when you come back to me, I'm coming to you. And the greatest picture, of course, is in Luke 15 with the prodigal. The prodigal goes out, wants his estate, wants to spend his life the way he wants to spend it, ends up eating in the pig pen, desiring to have just the, the pods that the pigs are eating dreams about being back with his father and realizing he blew it. He screwed up his whole life. And then he decides, I'll go back and ask if I can be a slave on my dad's farm. And he goes back and, of course, the father was waiting for him, looking out over the horizon. Basically, son, if you turn to me, I'll return to you. He was looking out over the horizon. Here comes his son. And the father, forgetting all conventions, ignoring all customs, where an older man was never to run. When you run, you lose your dignity. And he took off in a dash for his son. And that's the way the Lord is. He's the waiting father. And he's saying, would you please come back from the pig pen? Come on back. This is your estate. It was always yours. And just because you squandered your part of it doesn't mean that it's gone because it's an infinitely glorious estate. You come on back, there's more. Why? I'm your dad. And your dad happens to be the king of the universe. Come on back. And the older son was thinking, well, this is really some kind of crap. You know, I've been sitting here on the farm working all this time. I hadn't been treat- he hadn't been treating me this way. And here's this prodigal, this worthless brother of mine. And the father runs out after him. And the father, you know, didn't put him back to work as a servant on the estate. He said, this is my son. Bring the ring. Kill the fatted lamb. Put the cloak on him again. Enthrone him as son just because he came back. That's exactly what it is with you. You don't have to work your way back. You don't have to prove yourself. Just come back. And the Father will put you right back on the throne where you belong. So just come on back today. Why would you wait till tomorrow? One more day of misery. One more day of living a vague life. One more day of lack of direction. Come on back now. And He says, I will return to you. You think you're going to come back to an empty house? You think you're going to come back and go be put in the prison or put out to work in the pasture? You're coming back to the Father and He's eager to receive you. That's repentance is realizing he wants you to come back. And when you come back, you'll have his arms around you and be embraced. 
Thirdly, verses 4 through 6a teach us that our forefathers suffered God's judgment. So basically, we understand we have to look at our own heritage, whether it be church or culture, and say our forefathers in some ways experienced God's judgment. It's easy to see. You know, if you had a materialistic home, and you can see the devastation of that. Anyone here? who had a materialistic home, knows that. If you had a broken home with a father who abandoned your mother, you know the devastation of that. You just look at that. God's judgment is coming on misbehavior in this world, right? Beginning with his church. So let's all acknowledge it, that whatever we've experienced has been God's judgment. God is not an idiot. Things don't, you don't pull the wool over his eyes and that we have experienced judgment. And then verse 6b, not only did he judge, but we deserved it. He says, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. So we are admitting the justice of God's judgment. We don't complain and say, you know what? I don't know why God always does this to me. I don't know why my life is so tough. I don't know what. Uh, Just a bunch of whining. And you'll notice that repentance gets rid of whining and says, Lord, I am here in this body for right now. You do to me whatever you want to do. I'm yours. And I don't deserve anything. I deserve anything bad that comes my way. And you just see the humility that Zechariah is saying, look, let's first of all reconstruct our hearts. Let's get in the right place. Get ourselves low. Get him high. Now we're ready to talk business. And there's piety for it. It begins with repentance. Now, secondly, when we move into these visions, we see that we must believe the good promises of God. And all the way from verse 1, 7 to 6, 8, he is showing us his incredible promises. He's saying, come to me. And he's saying, look, here's why you should come to me. Get a vision for what it means to be mine. And he gives us eight visions for what it means to belong to the Lord, what it means to be his son, what it means to be back home on the estate. What it means to be loved by Him. It's amazing. Now, what we want to do before we launch into these, and we'll, we're going to move pretty quickly through them, I want us to remind ourselves of some common elements in biblical apocalyptic texts. You remember in Revelation, you have the agency of angels. Angels are just popping off all over the place. You get the same thing in Zechariah. Lurid colors, very bright. It's like, a, uh, as we remember we said, uh, Revelation, in, in uh, Eugene Peterson's words, was a literary video. And that's the way Zechariah is. It's, it's a literary video. You, just, you get all kinds of colors uh, going off in your head. And then you get these bizarre symbols. Now, once again, Revelation is, I think, a, more bizarre than Zechariah. But Zechariah gives us a good warning of what's come ahead in Revelation. Because you do get these things in apocalyptic. And as soon as you move into these things, you're aware that you're into another literary genre. And, of course, you want to interpret this genre in an appropriate way. Now, why do we have biblical apocalyptic? You remember what we said in Revelation? There's a purpose for this. The purpose of biblical apocalyptic, number one, it stirs the imagination. God wants your imagination to be stirred. Your imagination is a gift from Him. It's to be used. You may have a very ordinary job. You know, you may be working with the here and the now in great detail every day in a kind of a narrow scope of life. And that's fine. And I'm glad you're gifted to do that. Some of us are too ADD to do that. You know, some of you, some of you can stay focused. And I'm really, really grateful. But what God wants to say to us all is regardless of your mental framework, you have to have moments in your life and there needs to be an overlay of your entire life where your imagination is being encouraged and being stimulated. And the Bible is meant to do that for you. It gives us hope. This is what stirs hope because if you think about heaven, it is otherworldly. It's beyond imagination. It's, it's amazing. It's astonishing. It's, it's more than our minds can take in. And we have to have our imagination stirred in order to have even a foretaste of what heaven will be like. It arrests complacency. Once we realize that this is the way ultimate human experience is to be lived, we compare that to what we're doing now. We say, this is a bunch of crud. I'm not going to live this way anymore because I'm destined for greatness. I'm a prince. I'm a king. I'm a son of God by his grace. Why am I living like this? So when you get apocalyptic, you get the vision in your mind, it'll arrest the complacency in ordinary life. And then, of course, it inspires worship because when you are 
in the book of Revelation, you just have to stop and lift up your hands and lift up your heart and praise the Lord because that's what they're doing. You want to see what heaven is like? You want to see what glory is like? You want to see what satisfaction is like? It is hungering and thirsting for the greatest being in the entire universe and get him. That's heaven. And that's what worship is. Now, let's look at principles for interpreting Zechariah. First of all, consider the text as a whole. Don't get stuck in one image. Take all the images together. We saw that in Revelation as well. Take the genre seriously, not always literally. That means if, if we're told that a chariot comes in and marches to the north, you're not out there looking for the next time a chariot comes around and marches to the north and say, oh, that's God at work. That would be a literal, scientific sort of interpretation, but it's not taking the genre seriously. Just as you take poetry seriously, you have to take apocalyptic seriously and interpret within its own genre. Thirdly, don't insist on chronological order. We saw that in Revelation in particular. Fourthly, use the analogy of Scripture. That is, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Where you have clear teaching passages. For example, take the Pauline epistles or the Petrine epistles which are clear teaching passages which give us some chronology and some framework for the end times. And you let that uh, epistolary material inform the way you're interpreting this really kind of bizarre apocalyptic literature. And a big mistake that a lot of people make is they start with the apocalyptic without the framework of the didactic or teaching portions in Scripture, and they come up with some bizarre interpretations. Fifthly, consult other biblical apocalyptic texts. Now, especially if you're in Revelation, you want to go back. Zechariah is early, but even with Zechariah, you also have Daniel. And so you can compare Zechariah and Daniel, see how apocalyptic is being used in other places. Sixthly, use common sense. I guess that's... Pretty tough for us anyway, so we'll go on to number seven. A determined author's intent. And this is very important. What is the author trying to convey to us? Well, we've already said. The author is trying to convey to us that not only is our building project important, but our hearts are more important. And he's showing us that, number one, repentance. Number two, hope and faith in the promises of God. And number three, exalting the mediator, the, the Messiah. This is what it's all about. So anything in interpretation of the apocalyptic that doesn't serve the author's intent would be an incorrect interpretation because Zechariah is not an idiot. He's being consistent. Let's find out his intent. Eighthly, ask what it meant to the original audience. That's a part of number seven. Ninthly, focus on the main ideas. This is an impressionistic work of art. So you don't look at one dot and say, now, isn't that significant? Here's an orange dot next to a yellow dot. And then, did you notice, right after that, a red dot. Now think about what that means. I mean, seriously, you get some people who look at apocalyptic that way and you think, what in the world are they talking about? They've lost their minds. They've certainly lost the context of what's going on here and they're certainly not focusing on the main idea. This is an impressionistic work of art, which means back up. When you're looking at impressionistic work, you don't... Get up and look at the dots or the, you know, the fuzz. <laughs> you get back and you look at the whole work. It's impressionistic. It's leaving an impression. And apocalyptic does the same thing. Tenthly, sing in a lower key. Uh, that means we don't always know. <laughs> you know, we give it our best shot, but we don't always know. Now, with that introduction, let's look at this first one in verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. During the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked, what are these, my Lord? The angel, there's another angel, who was talking with me, and notice in Apocalyptic, angels will often give us interpretation, don't they? So here we go. Talking with me, answered, I will show you what they are. Uh, uh, you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, They are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these seventy years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. 
Then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I'm very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I'm very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they added to the calamity. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further. This is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Wow. Praise the Lord. He's saying, look, I'm telling you to get involved in changing this city. I'm telling you to take care of the poor. I'm telling you to build the kingdom around the world. I'm telling you to evangelize the Muslims and the Hindus and the Buddhists and the Jews and everybody, the seculars. I'm telling you to do the work that seems so hard for you to do. Let me give you some really good news. This is ending up in victory. I've already secured it. It's done. Oh, that's, that's nice to know. <laughs> it changes everything, doesn't it? That means we're on the winning side. So he calls us to repentance. But he doesn't leave it indefinite about where history is going. He means to show us exactly where history is going. So we're called to the noblest work. It's dangerous work. It's hard work. It's sacrificial work. It's costly work. But we win in the end. Look at this when he, when he says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, verse 16, and there my house will be rebuilt. Notice, the house was not rebuilt yet. But God is saying, I will rebuild it. You say, now, hold on just a minute now. How can he say that if it hadn't been rebuilt? Does that make my work unnecessary? Does that mean it doesn't make any difference whatsoever what I do? Because he's already saying the house is going to be rebuilt anyway, so it doesn't matter what I do. You see, that's, you're not thinking like a biblical person. A biblical person says, I'm doing what he commands because he commanded it. And I'm doing it with joy because I know he will bring it to completion. That's exactly what Paul says. That he doesn't compose unfinished symphonies. He, and you're not... You're not going to end up with an unfinished life. He's going to bring it to completion. He's going to bring his church to completion. So you can see how for us to be renovated under God, we have to know that he's going to bring this to completion. Otherwise, we have a wrong idea about whose work it is. Francis Schaeffer said there are three types of people. There are people who build their own kingdom. There are people who build God's kingdom. And there are people through whom God builds his kingdom. Now, what Zechariah is saying, I want you to be a person through whom God is doing the work. I don't want you to think you're doing the work. Now, you are working. But what I want you to realize is that God is working his purposes out with his energy through you. And don't get the bad idea that you're the one who came up with a design for this temple nor that you're the one who's going to build it. You're going to work for him, but he's going to do it. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. And that's exactly what he is doing through you. You're his instrument. You're not the Lord. You're an instrument. That's what you get here. When you get vision and hope, what it does, it, it inspires you to realize you're on the winning side. It's going to come to a beautiful completion. And you realize, hey, I'm an instrument in God's hands. I'm not calling the shots. He's calling the shots through me. My job is to be faithful to him. Now, that's the first vision. And you notice that with these four horses, it does kind of remind you of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, doesn't it, uh, in Revelation. So there are some similarities. Now, this, the next one I'm going to skip. It has to do with four horns that are invading Israel, but then the, the four craftsmen that will take care of those horns. Uh, God will repay our enemies. Then C... The third vision, God will gloriously indwell his numerous chosen people. This is the man with a measuring line. And you see uh, verse 4 in chapter 2. Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it. And I will be its glory within. Wow, what a statement. God is going to defend his church with a wall of fire. And you know... There are some amazing missionary stories. I was reading one of John uh, Patton who went to the Hebrides. Did I tell you all this? I don't think I did. Went to the Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. And he went on this island and they were being attacked by the islanders who were cannibalistic people. And that night they were surrounded by these people 
And they just were basically telling each other goodbye, praying to the Lord, commending themselves to the Lord because they knew their night had come. It's going to be all over. Strangely, nothing happened that night. Later on, they led that tribe to Christ. And they, they asked some of the tribesmen, do you remember the night when you surrounded our house and you were whooping it up and you had already killed some other people? Why didn't you kill us? And they said, well, you had all these, these fiery troops around your house. They said, we saw hundreds of troops lined up with you, around your house and they were on fire. Okay, I don't know. I don't know. Look, I'm a Presbyterian. I'm not supposed to understand these things. Uh, I'm just telling you that God is protecting you in ways that you cannot even see with your eyes. But He has been protecting you. He is protecting you. He cares for you a lot more than you realize. And when bad things happen to you, I know you're just like me, like everybody else. You begin to wonder if God really cares for you. I'm telling you, just go back to Zechariah, will you? He surrounded you with a wall of fire. Ain't nobody going to touch you but what He has designs on that whole process. So this is for us to believe. It's true. You can believe it or not believe it, but it's true if you belong to Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 10, Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and so on. Verse 12, The Lord will inherit Judah as His portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Do you see what this is? God is not only our inheritance, we are His inheritance. You say, poor guy. (laughs) I mean, no, he's very happy about it. That he gets Judah, the people of God, for his people. Okay, the next vision is vision four. God will cleanse and clothe us spiritually. This is very important. He's basically saying, look, with all the filth that's been going on for 70 years among my people... There's a lot for Satan to do to accuse you. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing in his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? So you've done all these terrible things. You have filth all over you. You have accusations that can justly be given against you. And believe me, Satan knows every one of them, except for the sins of your mind. He doesn't know what you're thinking. But he knows everything you said. He knows everything you did. And he has kept the record of it. And believe me, he is ready to be your prosecutor. And he's a good one. And he's standing right there, ready to prosecute. And the Lord takes on Satan and says, Shut up. Rebuke you, Satan. Don't you know I'm the one who takes fiery brands out of the fire? that I take sticks that are burning and are ready to be destroyed and turned to ashes. Don't you know, I snatch those out of the fire. And that's one of mine. And that's exactly what he's saying about Joshua the high priest. And it's exactly what he's saying about every one of his people. And it provokes the Lord's anger when Satan, who knows what you've done, tries to use that to keep you out of heavenly dwellings. Nothing could make the Lord more angry. Why? You're His inheritance. You're His legacy. You're His people. You're His sons. You're His chosen ones. And He will go to war for you. And you do not have to worry about Satan. Satan's stronger than you are, but he is infinitely less strong than the Lord and he has been absolutely condemned. And every one of his accusations, the Lord hates. And it causes him to have a fiery anger in response to him. You don't have to worry about defending yourself, believe me. Don't bother to defend yourself. It's not, number one, it's a waste of your time. Uh, And it's unworthy of you. But more importantly, it's unworthy of the Lord. He's got your defense in hand. You have an advocate before the Father. Don't worry about it. So, why would you accuse yourself? If the devil, who knows remembers more about your bad things than you do, is absolutely destroyed because he tries to be your accuser, why are you trying to be your accuser? You're siding with Satan when you condemn yourself. It's a totally worthless and ungodly behavior. That's the reason that Zechariah is saying, look, let's get our hearts right. Let's remember where this thing is going. Let's remember who's on our side. Let's remember who we are. Even with all of our filth of the past 70 years and all the sins of our forefathers, let's remember who we are. And let's live like it. That's that vision number five. I'm sorry, number four. Now let's look at vision five, verses four, uh, one through 14, all of chapter four. The gold lampstand and two olive trees. Now this is important. This is 
I would say the unique contribution that Zechariah is making to the nature of the Messiah who is coming. For that reason, I want to read this chapter 4. Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me as a man is wakened from his sleep. He asked me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a, a, a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it with seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on, the, on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? Duh. Uh, no, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power. But by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. There's a famous verse for you. What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. So you see, the Lord is saying, look, you're going to build this temple, Zerubbabel, not by your might, not by your power, not by your architectural abilities, not by your, your construction abilities, not because of your power in any sense, but because of mine. Because I'll say to these mountains, be level, and they'll be level. So you don't have to worry about having enough power to do what the Lord calls you to do. Then the Lord, word of the Lord came to me, verse 8, verse 9. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. He's saying, those of you who remember the old temple, the way things used to be, and you're afraid this temple is just not going to match up. Those of you who remember the great days of the past when morality really reigned in our country. What has happened to our country? Da, 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 da. Don't fear that this is going to be a day of small things. I'm telling you, I'm taking you on to something grand and glorious. Stop your whimpering. Stop your crying. We're moving on. To a Zion that is glorious. That's what he's saying. It's triumphalistic. And he's saying, look, you may not think that this Zerubbabel that I've got here, this governor, this son of David is going to be one of your greater reigns. I'm telling you in his hand, the foundation of this temple is going to be laid. And it's going to be a great one. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. Verse 11, then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And again, I asked him. What are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes? Maybe he didn't hear them the first time. And pour out golden oil. He replied, do you not know what they are? these are? Duh. No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Okay. These are the two. Now, who are the two? So Rubabel is a son of David. He's the governor appointed by the Persian king because he knew that he had... He had Blue blood. So we put a blue blood in charge, son of David. And then you have Joshua, the high priest. You know, Israel always had a high priest who was in charge. You had priestly lineage. So you have Judah lineage, Davidic lineage, and you have Levitical lineage over here. So you have Zerubbabel and the high priest. These are the two that are anointed. Now, lastly, let's see how this all comes together about our hope. If And we're going to skip these other visions, except you'll just notice... In vision number six, God will judge the whole earth. You have a flying scroll that is a curse over the whole land. And then uh, God will remove our sin from us. It's really a kind of a replay of the same theme that you had uh, in vision four. And it's the woman in the basket. The sins are taken to Babylon. And then the eighth vision, God will protect us from all harm. It's really a replay of the first vision. Here you have four chariots. And God once again is protecting his people. But now let's come up to this, these la this last text we're going to look at, which is 6, 9 through 15. And this, we're being told, is where we must enthrone God's priest king. All right? Joshua the high priest is priest. You have uh, Zerubbabel, who is the king. And these are the two that are being pointed out in that fifth vision of the gold lampstand and the two olive trees. One is the priestly side and one is the kingly side. And what Zechariah is saying, in order to get your heart right, you have to know that the Lord has anointed these two and he has anointed them because one day he's going to put the two of them together so that there will be one anointed who will embrace both. Let's look at 
chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. The word of the Lord came to me. Take silver and gold from the exiles of Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. And that's a word that's used in Isaiah and as well as Zechariah. It's used in other places in Jeremiah as well as Isaiah to speak of Messiah. Okay? Here is the man whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two. The crown will be given to Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. He is saying, number one, in verses 9 through 11, that this priest king, he is the priest Joshua. Number two, he is the branch. Number three, he is the builder of the temple. Number four, he is the majestic ruler on the throne. And number five, he is the gatherer of the nations. Who, gentlemen, could this possibly be talking about? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no figure in the history of the world but He who has combined the priestly and the kingly line. If you'll look in the Scriptures, you will find, for example, in Second Chronicles chapter 26, there is a king named Uzziah. And you remember that Isaiah went into the temple and had his grand vision, we are told, when King Uzziah died. He was king for 52 years, did a lot of good things, built up over 300,000 troops, built towers in the city, rebuilt Jerusalem, did many, many mighty things. But we're told one thing was wrong with him. He was proud. He was proud of his accomplishments. And he was so proud that this king thought he could also take the role of the clergy and be a priest. And so he was so impressed with himself that he had done so many wonderful things for Jerusalem, he thought, well, I'll just go right over here and take incense into the temple and I'll offer incense in a place, in the holy place, where only the priests are supposed to go because I'm a special person. So King Uzziah goes in and there are scores of priests lined up pleading with him not to do this, that he's sinning against the Lord. He said, I'm not sinning against the Lord. My name's Uzziah. I'm going in and offer incense. And all of a sudden, they saw that leprosy began to come upon his forehead. And those priests rushed him out of the temple because he was stricken with leprosy right before the Lord because of his arrogance and his pride. Because he thought, just because he was a great king, that he could also be the priest. And everyone knows, you have prophets, you have priests, and you have kings. And you anoint them separately. They're distinct to their office. There is a division of powers because men are sinners. There needs to be a division of powers. You have to have Congress, you have to have the Supreme Court, and you have to have the presidency. And when you, someone tries to cross the boundaries and just listen to it today in the hall, of Congress, people trying to grab power from some other branch of government that does not do theirs. And everybody gets upset. Why? Because we're dealing with sinners. They have to stick to their business. And if you're president, you need to stay in the executive branch. If you're judicial, you need to stay in the judicial branch. And if you're legislative, you need to stay in the legislative branch. And it was the same way in the Old Testament. And anyone who sought to bridge that gap was full of arrogance. And anyone who does it in America is full of arrogance. Well, when could these ever be bridged? It would only be when the one who finally has come, who is righteous, who is perfect, who is to be trusted, and in whom we want to give all the branches of government, give Him the whole thing. Give Him the priestly and the prophetic and the kingly. Who could this possibly be? This is exactly who Jesus Christ is. And when you turn to the pages of Hebrews, here's the most amazing thing about Hebrews. Well, there are many amazing things about Hebrews. But in the New Testament in Hebrews, one of the most amazing things is this is a priest, Jesus Christ. But he's not a priest after the Levitical order. He's a priest after the king, Melchizedek. The order of Melchizedek. This ancient, this ancient person who is so mysterious in the pages of Genesis, 
who seems to have combined in his own office the kingly and priestly powers. And then he disappears as quickly as he came. Why? Because he is a forerunner of the great Melchizedek which is to come, in whom we can place our trust with our sins as priest and with our lives as king. And we can give our full selves to him and trust him because he doesn't have to be protected against and guarded against grabbing power that doesn't belong to him. He owns all power and he is to be trusted with all power because he uses all power to promote our self-interest. This is the great priest king, Lord Jesus Christ. So what Zechariah is saying is not only must we turn away from our sins genuinely, from the bottom of our hearts, and come back to the Lord that He may come back to us in the fullness of His power. Not only must we be re-inspired with a vision for the great things that are coming upon us as the sons of God, but we must do everything in life to exalt this priest king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus means Joshua. Christ means Mashiach, the Anointed One. The anointed Joshua has come. So let us give him praise. Let everything in your life be oriented by what exalts him, even if it kills you. And this is the real life that is lived in light of the realities that are revealed in the sacred scriptures. And this is the reason that the Apostle Paul said about his own life. If I just may exalt him, whether by life or by death. Philippians chapter 1. Exalt Him, whether by life or by death. There's one who has really returned to the Father and trusts Him to provide for us. There is one who really has a vision for God building His kingdom, Christ building His church through us for His everlasting glory. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the revelation of Zechariah. We thank You that we learned so much about our Lord Jesus today from reading this ancient text 25, 2600 years ago. Pray that we may always be Your students, always returning to You, being reminded of how gracious You are, returning to the vision that we need for our own lives. And Lord, help us as we would live a life that will exalt the great priest-king the Lord Jesus. You are great, O Lord. You have combined all the offices of the Scriptures. And we trust You implicitly. And pray now, Lord, take us and use us for Your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great one.